Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to another episode of the Christ and Culture podcast. I'm Dr. Ken Keithley, and today we're joined by Dr. Jeffrey Kapersky to discuss the relationship between science, philosophy, and theology, and to further explore the topic of his recent lecture entitled, Science, Philosophy, and Theology. Who owes what to whom? This lecture will be made available through our website. Dr. Kapersky is a professor of philosophy at Saginaw Valley State University in Michigan. He has a PhD from Ohio State University and a degree in electrical engineering from the University of Dayton. His areas of expertise are philosophy of science and philosophy of religion. While most of his work focused on philosophical questions in physics, his more recent publications deal with issues that are at the intersection of philosophy, science, and religion. He is an editorial board member for Philosophy Compass and has published articles in Philosophy of Science, the British Journal for the Philosophy of Science, and the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, among others. His two books are entitled The Physics of Theism, God, Physics, and the Philosophy of Science, and Divine Action, Determinism, and the Laws of Nature. Dr. Kapersky, thank you for speaking with us today. Glad to be here. Thanks. Thanks for the invitation. You spoke to us on science, philosophy, and theology, who owes what to whom, uh, which is an intriguing title because I can imagine some of our listeners thinking, well, I, I can't imagine any one of those owing anything <laughs> to the other. You know, um, isn't the East the East and the West and the West and never the twain shall meet? <laughs> right, right. You know, they, they're, all, they're in their own separate silos. In your lecture, uh, which is available at the Intersect uh, Project uh, website, you you make it pretty clear that no, that they all are interrelated in in foundational ways. In fact, many of the leading thinkers uh, who brought about the scientific revolution, and I put sign the expression "scientific revolution" in in air quotes because. Who knows just how much of a revolution it really was? It, it, mm -hmm. it took a couple hundred years. Mm -hmm. uh, they were theists. Mm -hmm. Now, how how significant is it that uh, many of the leaders of the scientific revolution were believers in God? Was was that essential to their approach, or was that just an incidental uh, uh, characteristic because they were in a religious milieu or environment? Right. So how how central? Uh, to their, the development of science as a discipline was the uh, science was the theistic foundation of their thinking. Mm -hmm. Well, some some Christians have gone so far to argue that, that Christianity and, and theism is responsible for for the rise of science. Um, I, I think that's too strong, uh, but I, I don't I don't think it's incidental. Um, I mean, you you do see technological advances in, in non-theistic cultures prior to the, to the scientific revolution. Um, but most of the things that you see that you could get by, by trial and error, right? So it's advanced tools, it's farming techniques and stuff like that. But what you don't see 
are, are theoretical sciences or, or disciplines where you're trying to get at the underlying mechanism for, for how a thing works. So, so why is that? Why, you know, how do we get from trial and error technology to, to science, something like we, we think of it today? Well, what the theism brought to the table uh, during the scientific revolution is the notion of the laws of nature, the laws of nature. So people in the, in the ancient and, and medieval worlds, they, they knew that Nature was orderly, of course, but they didn't attribute that order to laws. So when you have natural philosophers come along, like, like Descartes and, and Newton and Boyle, they start talking about the laws of nature. Well, the, the reason they believe there are laws of nature is because they believed in a divine law giver, that they absolutely are, are intertwined. Uh, um, the idea that there, there could even be laws for the whole of nature, that comes from theism. There, there just is no debate about that whatsoever. Um, and of course, then those same thinkers, they started to discover concrete, specific laws uh, out there that, that for the world. Uh, and the laws have been you know, a center of, of physics and chemistry uh, ever since. So, so could we have gotten physics and chemistry the way we think of it today without the notion of laws? Well, I, you know, it's possible. It's, uh, I, I don't know how that would go or how it would look. So yeah, I do, I think, I do think that to some extent, science owes a debt to theism. So if I hear you right, the way many historians of science would say is that, yes, um, many cultures and societies, it's possible to learn from experience. In fact, that's what you have. You know, they, you know, you have where, where, where trial and error, you just, you just notice these things mm -hmm. and you learn from it. So mm -hmm. that's learning from experience. But to actually make experiment a, a rigorous discipline, the experimental right. method, required a conceptual paradigm that theism was ideal to do so, because you have the notion of, of natural law that you were discovering. Here. Right. So, um, so I, you, in your lecture, you, you made that point so well, that some of the central ideas in science have a theological foundation, but you went beyond that. You, you made a more... Um, <laughs> daring claim. You said, uh, without that theological foundation, scientific theories are at best useful, but not true. What did you mean when you said that? Okay, well, let's, so yeah, there's two things, right? The, the theological foundation. So let's, let's start with the easier claim. I'll say, let me say a little bit more about that, and then I'll go on to the, the controversial one. Um, so yeah, the things like the laws of nature themselves, that I just said, uh, they, they clearly had a, a theological foundation. You don't get laws without... God. There's also the notion of, of the uniformity of nature. So uniformity says that the laws are the same here locally as they are everywhere else. Um, now, why we, we believe that? Why believe that? Well, Newton himself argued that the laws are the same everywhere that, that God exists. And since God is omnipresent, then his laws are the same everywhere. Um, you might worry that they could change. Maybe the laws could change in a hundred years. And, and Descartes said, no, you don't have to worry about that. And, and the reason is it was based on God's immutability. He appeals to God's immutability. God's not going to change his mind. And so the laws that God has ordained, they're, they're going to stay what they are. So again, as a matter of the history of science, none of this is controversial. Laws of nature, uniformity of, of nature, lots of other important ideas. Yeah, they have, they have theological roots. We just we're not very good at, at, at teaching that part of the, of the history of science. As you say, though, I had this the second claim, which is a, a lot more controversial. Um, 
So most of your listeners are what philosophers call scientific realists. Uh, they, they believe that, that science gives us the truth about things, at least for the most part. So science probably most people would, would say, isn't just about, say, making making predictions. It's about how things really are. So I, I often say, you know, you believe in electrons, but you can't see electrons. You've never seen a, an electron. And same for gravity. You can see gravity's effects, but you, you can't see gravity itself. So if you believe that there are electrons and that our best scientific theories are for the most, most part true, then, then you're a scientific realist. Okay, so most philosophers are realists, most scientists are realists, most early moderns were, were realists because they believed that, that God had given us the ability to go out and discover those laws. God had ordained the laws, but then you know, allowed us to go out and find out what they were. So Kepler himself, he, he said that uh, really when we're doing science, we're just we're thinking God's thoughts after him. So God has given us the ability to go out and, you know, and find this stuff. Uh, well, what if you... What if you don't believe that? What if you what if you believe that you know there's nothing that's kind of keeping our minds uh, you know on 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 track and giving us the ability to um, um, to go and discover these truths? Well, that second argument then uh, is a little bit harder. I'm relying a lot on, on an argument from from Alvin Plantinga called the the evolutionary argument against a naturalism. So first, this is this is not an argument against evolution. Uh, it, it's an argument about what we should expect under a, a fully naturalistic uh, interpretation of evolution. So here, here's the here's the simplest version I, I can give you. I'm going to try to give you the, the best one. Um, Neo-Darwinian evolution, it's very good at producing one thing, uh, one thing. It, it evolves beings that can survive in a given environment. So for animals, that's mostly about behavior. That's about finding food, hiding fighting when necessary, and then finding a mate. Um, what natural selection doesn't care about is, is truth. Uh, whether an animal has true beliefs or not, that's just, that's just irrelevant because all that matters is, is behavior. So if a, if a deer sees a wolf, then it's, it's got to run. Uh, doesn't mean the deer has to have true beliefs about the, the wolf. It, if you could see inside the deer's mind, for all we know, a, a wolf might look like a snow cone. But so long as the deer associates snow cones with danger, that's fine. It, it's still going to run. So that's kind of the, the, the picture of how natural selection works out, out in, the, in the wild. The problem with this, the problem with the truth not being on the list of things that that natural selection aims at it has to do with us because you know homo sapiens as a species we've survived for a long time that means we're, we're fit relative to our environment our, our cognitive faculties they work um, but fitness this notion of fitness it doesn't have any intrinsic connection to, to truth to, to true belief so in other words natural selection would be just fine if what we had were mostly false beliefs so long as those beliefs got us to behave in the right ways in the right circumstances, just like the deer and the, and the snow cone. So evolution isn't aimed at producing true beliefs, which means that under naturalistic evolution, you, you've got some reason to be skeptical of your own beliefs. They, they do work. They help us get around. Are, are they true? Well, natural selection doesn't care about, about truth. So Planica has given this argument. Darwin himself worried about all this. Um, other philosophers like Thomas Nagel, who is not a theist, also worries about this. Uh, and Nagel and took quite a bit of heat for, for <laughs> Nagel took a huge beating. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, uh, his his atheist colleagues uh, 
did not receive him well. In fact, I think, if I remember correctly, I, the book came out like in 2012, and it received a, sort of a Razzie Award, the worst science book of the year or something yeah. of that nature. So, but Nagel and Plantinga and others, we'll talk about Hoffman here in a second, if I understand the argument, you can correct me, basically you're saying, as you just said, the purpose of, 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 of evolution is survival. It's, it's not at the arrival of truth. Right. So um, there's nothing in the evolutionary paradigm of survival of the fittest uh, that, would, that would give us any reason to think that our brains are, are truth obtainers. You know, yeah. there are, that our brains are geared or wired to arrive at anything that would remotely look like truth. Right. Speaking of brains, there is a neuroscientist, a cognitive neuroscientist, Donald Huffman, who seems to have arrived at a similar conclusion that, uh, that of, of Plantinga and Nagel without really being aware of their arguments. You mentioned his uh, uh, his findings. What was it that uh, what was it that Hoffman argued? What, how did he go about it? Right. So. Um... So Hoffman and his team have, have several papers now that show that natural selection seems to favor creatures uh, whose beliefs are, are merely correlated with reality and, and not ones that, that have um, truths, that have true perceptual beliefs. And so the way they have done this is through um, computer simulations. So you can, you can do a computer simulation is a common thing in, in computational biology to, to set up a virtual environment with different creatures with different uh, abilities and let, let them compete. And so ultimately that, that's what they did. They put in, they put in per, virtual creatures who had uh, true perceptual beliefs, meaning everything about their environment that, that could be known, some of those creatures, they, they knew everything. It was, it was like perceptual omniscience, which isn't kind of an idealization. There aren't, aren't any creatures like that in, in nature, but you know, that was one extreme. Uh, the, then there were creatures more like us where they get some things, they know some things about their environment, but not everything. And then they put these other creatures, virtual creatures that, that, that had no true perceptual beliefs. So everything that's going on in, in their minds, it's, it's, merely, it's merely heuristic. There's some sort of correlation to what's going on in their environment, but nothing, but nothing true. They don't see anything as it really is. And so they have, the, have these virtual environments and they let those you know, creatures compete. They want to see you know, what, what evolution favored. And it turns out that what, what evolution favors are those um, creatures that you would think maybe wouldn't do so well, the ones that don't have any true beliefs. Um, uh, the, the ones that knew everything or knew things partially true, uh, they were driven to extinction again and again and again by the creatures that didn't have any true beliefs. So that, that seems to show, and this is the, this is the, the conclusion that, that Hoffman draws, that, that natural selection by itself, that's the only thing that's, that, that is out there shaping our, our cognitive faculties. Natural selection seems to favor creatures that, that don't have true beliefs. They have, again, there's correlations. What's going on in your mind, it would say somehow or other correlates to what's out there in nature. But, you know, yeah, if you, if you see that woof and whatever you see in, in, in your mind, um, that's, that really isn't how things are out there uh, in nature. So I do think, um, I haven't seen anyone who's pulled these two together uh, uh, in a paper, um, 
uh, other than me, I did I did talk about this in in, in one paper that, that that this supports Planiga's view, but but I think it does. I think this is just the sort of thing that Planiga had in mind, um, and and even a little bit stronger. I, I think Planiga would say there's his, the conclusion. His argument is there's no particular reason to think that we arrive at true belief. So it's kind of a skepticism. Hoffman's stronger. He's saying no. Look, <laughs> natural selection it actually drives creatures uh, to develop cognitive uh, systems that 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 don't uh, latch on to truth that's what naturalism naturalistic evolution prefers i i listened to an interview uh, of hoffman and if i understand and if i understand hoffman correctly he argued that for all intents and purposes uh, his studies show that our understanding or perception of reality functionally goes down to zero that we, we the, the one thing we can be sure about is that we don't have any real grasp of reality, mm-hmm. which um, here's where, you know, as, a, as, as I'm not a philosopher, nor am I a neuroscientist. But as I listened to that, I thought, well, wait a minute. Uh, you're telling me that you that we have no uh, access to reality. And yet you expect me to. Uh, accept your conclusions as being real. Uh, so I, I, I was wondering uh, what he thought about that in terms, you know, is, is there not a danger of a self-referential absurdity? But his points, I get his point. I get his point. So you then went on in your, your talk uh, for us. And, and let me just say to the listener, if you want to hear Dr. Kapersky's lecture, you can hear it on uh, Intersect Project. Uh, the CFC's website, and uh, about science, philosophy, and theology, who owes what to whom. You then talk about the distinction and difference between ontological naturalism and methodological naturalism. And then you talked about the reasons to reject methodological naturalism. Uh, and then you even said, you know, there's the, def- the danger of what you call the leprechaun theory. Can you, can you walk us through why, why are why are we in danger of, of the leprechaun theory? What, okay. Talk to us about that. All right. So there's a lot, a lot going on there with your questions. Let me, let me take it from the top, right? Um, ontological naturalism and, and methodological naturalism. So ontological naturalism says that only natural entities exist. So the kinds of stuff that, that physicists and chemists study, uh, that's all there is. So there's no souls, there's no God, nothing immaterial. It's a, it's a strong existence claim methodological naturalism is is weaker it says that there there might be supernatural entities all that stuff might exist you just can't talk about them when you're doing science if you're going to give a a scientific explanation you can't appeal to to anything supernatural so it doesn't mean there aren't again true explanations about god and the like it just can't be part of science so if, if you're a theist you've got to reject ontological naturalism, right? You believe in at least one being, God, that isn't a natural entity. Um, but a lot of a lot of Christian academics um, affirm uh, methodological naturalism. Um, they, they think some think it's it's just true by definition, right? Supernatural isn't part of science, and others think it, it's useful for for keeping everyone kind of in their proper lanes. So if you, if you're doing science, if that means you can't consider as a scientist when, you, when you're working as a scientist, non-natural stuff, then the scientists shouldn't have anything to say about religion, nothing, nothing positive, nothing negative. Science just should be completely neutral with respect to, to religion. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, so somebody would say, well, what's wrong with that? 
What's oh, so bad well, about that? I'm, I'm kind of, see, I'm sympathetic to it in, in some ways. I think this probably is the majority view among theistic philosophers and, and, and scientists. Um, again, I'm just, I'm not convinced it's right. Uh, one, one thing would be if, if everyone, it would be fine if everyone played by these rules. If everyone did stay in their lanes, uh, that would be fine, but, but they don't. So you have the, the Richard Dawkinsons of the world and, and Lawrence Krauss and, you know, I don't know how many. Sean Carroll's. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, Carroll, Carroll's a little bit more fair, but, but you're right. Yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. They, they do say um, that, that science just is as dis, dis, disproven religion. Right. Um, and so that means that, you know, because of methodological naturalism, they don't have to listen to our arguments. They don't have to listen to theistic arguments because that's not science. Right. They're just doing science. But somehow or other, they can attack religion all they want and then claim that, that science backs them up. So this notion of staying in your lanes and science being neutral, it just it really doesn't work that way. I don't really see these these boundaries uh, in in science. Um, Another one, um, uh, like maybe the biggest one. This will this will be the one that takes us into, into leprechaun theory. I think that um, I think methodological naturalism is just superfluous. You, you really you really don't need it. Uh, appealing to methodological naturalism is actually a, it's a relatively new phenomenon in the history of science. Like Darwin, Darwin didn't appeal to to anything like this. He just said, "Hey, I've got I've got the better theory. I got the better explanation." So I just don't think science is so so delicate, so precarious that it needs this kind of protection of, of methodological naturalism as, as, a, as a shield against the, the supernatural. In fact, the only time I ever see anyone bringing it up is if they want to beat up on something like, mm -hmm. like intelligent design. So um, the leprechaun thing, okay, so th this, is, yeah. this is actually how I illustrate that, that point um, about why we, why we don't need it. Um, if you take a magnet, and you start moving around little little bits of iron. Uh, now I'm going to explain that by appealing to to Maxwell's electromagnetic theory. Uh, but but say someone comes along and says, "Oh no no, I I've seen this before. This is certainly the work of leprechauns." Right now, do we need methodological naturalism to keep students from being influenced by by leprechaun theory? And uh, as I as I've said in the, in the lecture, I, I kind of doubt it. Uh, and the, the reason why is that it appeals to something that philosophers of science call the explanatory virtues, the explanatory virtues. These are things that we want in a good scientific explanation. And, and two of these, there's a whole list, but the two of these are, are testability and fruitfulness. We, we expect good theories to be empirically testable, and we expect them to be fruitful in terms of future research. So something like Einstein's general relativity. That, that was an explanation for gravity, uh, but it also explains why um, years later, decades later, physicists came to believe in black holes before there was any evidence whatsoever. So, so relativity has been a guide to research for 100 years. Okay, what about leprechaun theory? Is it testable? Well, leprechauns are said to have left a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Uh, I don't think anyone's found it yet, so I, I think that's, that hasn't proven to be testable yet. Um, is it fruitful for future research? Um, well, maybe. I mean, potentially, I guess. Uh, I just, I kind of doubt it. I, I don't think it has a, I don't think it has a future. Um, my, my point is just that science doesn't need this another thing over and above testability and, and fruitfulness. It doesn't need methodological naturalism to then fend off leprechauns. So I would say, look, if intelligent design theory or creationism, if these are, these are faulty, if they're bad theories, 
fine, just, just make the case. Tell us, tell us why it is that they're bad theories. Um, the, the, the history of science is filled with, with bad and discarded theories. I don't see why science needs any sort of additional protection uh, of methodological naturalism. Again, I just I think ultimately it's superfluous. So if I hear you correctly, and you can correct me if I'm misstating this, that as long as we have something that resembles Occam's razor, we we don't really need to go as far as methodological naturalism. Would that would that that may be an oversimplification, but does that get at it? I wouldn't say it's a. I would add Occam's simplicity is another one of those explanatory virtues. Again, there's there's, there's a test. There's a whole whole uh, list of, of those um, sorts of things, and and simplicity is on there. So yes, if if you can explain, so here's how I would do it with simplicity or Occam's razor. If you can explain um, the the behavior of those of the magnets and and, and the bits of iron without bringing in this, this new entity, right, a leprechaun, to explain it, then, yeah, that would be an, an unnecessary complication. So, uh, again, yeah, and, and as, as J.R.R. Tolkien demonstrates, if you bring in some kind of entity like that, you got to have 200 pages of backstory. To Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, most of our listeners are people of faith who are involved either in some type of ministry or church or outreach. And so they're thinking about these topics in a very missional way. Uh, so how, how would you help a Christian who is trying to think, okay, how would I incorporate this into my apologetics ministry or how I would, you know, it, I would help somebody who has questions about the faith. What would you say to them? You know, how would you say, okay, here's how this applies uh, to thinking about apologetics. Mm -hmm. how, what would you say there? Well, I don't, I don't do apologetics proper. I mean, I'm a, I'm a philosopher of science dabbling in philosophy of religion from time to time. But I, I do think this stuff uh, ha has apologetic value, put that way. Um, we, we don't have to be saddled with the view that, that science and religion are, are at war with, with one another, right? And just knowing some of the history, going back into the laws of nature and life, just a little bit of history shows why that, that whole conflict narrative, it's a false narrative that is not, that does not reflect the, the history. So I can think of my own attitudes and how they've changed just since graduate school. So I, I knew that Newton and Boyle and others, they mixed in a lot of religious language you know, into their, into their science. Uh, but back then I thought, you know, that was just, that was a more religious time. You know, these, these, these guys probably didn't think it was all that important, but they got to mix that stuff in to kind of keep the religious authorities off their back, you know, <laughs> that, that sort of thing. Um, well, then I started reading historians uh, like, like Peter Harrison, John Headley Brook, and, and I realized that God wasn't something that gets tacked on. Like they do all this science and at the end of the Principia Mathematica or something, they say, and, and God did it, right? God's it, it, it wasn't like that at all. It was absolutely central to, to their thinking. Uh, I'm convinced now that you actually don't get their physics without their metaphysics and their metaphysics has God right in the middle. Um, so um, naturalists, uh, in, in terms of apologetic value, I would say naturalists have been claiming that, that's, that science is theirs, right? For 200 years, they're saying this, this is kind of, you know, ours, science supports naturalism. And so, yeah, as a Christian, I would like to reclaim the history because, because it's our history. Uh, you just have to go back a little bit to, to find it. You mentioned several historians and several authors. Um, what resources would you suggest to our listeners who wish to dig deeper into some of these topics? 
in terms of the history of science, John Headley Brook that does have a nice book, um, Science and Religion, some historical perspectives. Um, so in, in terms of setting the record straight about the history of science, I think he would do that. Uh, if we're talking about going back a little, little further uh, in our discussion about um, natural science, uh, separating natural science from, from naturalism, getting the, the philosophy part and the science part and kind of, again, keeping everybody in their own lanes. Uh, Alvin Plantinga, the, the philosopher Alvin Plantinga, who we mentioned, uh, has a book. I think this, I think this might have been his last book, um, Where the Conflict Really Lies, Science, Religion, and, and Naturalism. That's, I think, I think Plantinga does a, does a very nice job. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that book also. We have been listening to Dr. Jeff Kapersky discussing the relationship between science, philosophy, and theology. Uh, and it is in the context of his lecture that he gave uh, for the Bush Center, Science, Philosophy, and Theology, Who Owes What to Whom? Uh, let me say to our listeners uh, that if you haven't subscribed, please do so. And also, if you haven't reviewed us, please give us a positive review so we'll be able to better get the word out about what is going on in the Christ and Culture podcast. My name is Ken Keefley, thanking you for listening and hoping you have a great day.